Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 58. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Jeremy Spencer, co-founder and former drummer for Five Finger Death Punch and frontman for Psychosexual. Remember, the best thing you can do to support this podcast is to go into Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening, leave a very nice review and a five-star rating. Those really, really help. You can find Speak and Destroy at speakanddestroy.com, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network, and the new Speak and Destroy theme is by Scott Mellinger of Zayo. Check out past episodes with great guests like M. Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold, Rob Flynn of Machine Head, Lizzie Hale of Hailstorm, Rob Halford of Judas Priest, and many, many more. So here it is, my conversation with Jeremy Spencer. This is Speak and Destroy. One thing that I like to ask people just to get going is tell me a little bit about your first uh, interaction, connection with music, and at what point it switched from, okay, this is something I love to this is something I need to participate in. I need to to actively make this. I want to be on the stage and not just in the audience. It all pretty much happened at the same time for me around age six, really early. I, I got a KISS record. Mm. I, actually, I went to service merchandise and got the Gene Dude, Simmons. service merchandise. I grew up in Indiana. That was a, that was a place we went all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I got Gene Simmons solo record out of the cutout bin. It was like 99 cents. <laughs> I take it home and it skipped. And I was, I was bummed, man. I, I was like crying and devastated. Fuck, it doesn't work. So I took it back and I was going to exchange it for another one. And they were out of Gene Simmons. All they had was Paul. So I got the Paul <laughs> solo record. And I loved it. But then I started getting every Kiss record after that. Yeah. My grandma bought me a little drum kit from Sears for like 80 bucks, 79 bucks special. Total piece of shit. But I, I just was pretending that I was in Kiss, you know, after yeah. that. So yeah. I, would, I would perform terribly and try to play along terribly. Um, I just kept practicing and listening to different bands, discovering different bands. And when I really started to take it serious was after I actually heard Metallica. Nice. Very nice. And that's, um, uh, yeah. And, and it's crazy. We're both um, uh, fellow Hoosiers and both ended up in California at some point. Um, yeah. And I would imagine we're probably uh, about the same age, Generation X. Yeah. Um, you know, I lived in Indianapolis for more of my life than not i don't know where boonville is <laughs> <laughs> where is that <laughs> it's like the southern tip of indiana kind of okay, right so, so almost country. more like louisville cincinnati 
it's it's well it's like Boonville and then like Henderson. And okay, Boonville. I know where where that is. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So right it's pretty close to Kentucky. Yeah. Um. So, what was the environment as far as? Because I I was also a Kiss fan as a little kid. Um. I had an older brother who was five years older than me, but I was I remember being really young and being aware of Makeup Kiss. Right. Like Creatures of the Night. Um. I think was the current album by the time I first ever saw them on TV. In fact, I think I Love It Loud was the first kiss I ever saw. But by the time, you know, by the time I was a teenager, it was hair metal kiss, you know? So yeah. it was like Asylum and, you know, that era and stuff. So it, it's always, it, kiss comes up in conversation a lot, not as much as Metallica, but almost. And it's always interesting the different points in which we discover KISS because there's so many eras and so many configurations. And it's interesting to me that you came in through the solo records, but the solo records at a time when they were in the cutout bin. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it, a very unique like, moment. It was like 79. Uh, the, the, those solo records came out in 78. So they, yeah. they ordered, they like pressed Way too it. many, yeah. And, it's uh, not, yeah, that didn't even mean it wasn't successful. It just means they made they shipped too many. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Over, like, overestimated. Yeah, so it, like it, I, I guess it wasn't a flop. It was like they, they pressed too many, right? So then yeah. they have to get rid of the shit. So. Yeah. But that's good for the consumer because we pay a dollar instead of four. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really cool. And um, yeah, it was all about Kiss Dynasty. You know, I was made for loving you that yeah. time. And that was, that was their big crossover hit. That that's kind of when I came on board, um, and they were they were coming to town for a concert in Evansville, and my parents wouldn't let me go. I guess they just were no, my six year old's not going to see that. You yeah. know, whatever. N- Knights in Satan's and, service, man. Totally, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But instead, they they're like, well, Hall and Oates is coming to town, and we'll take you to that. So they t- I'm like, what the fuck is Hall and Oates? <laughs> but then they took me to that concert, and it totally kicked ass. Like, yeah, uh, I bet students could play and sing and it was an exciting show and i had no idea what it was about but it was really cool so that was my yeah. first concert nobody was in makeup or breathing fire but we yeah it, it's so it's so funny because uh yeah my mom my first concert was kenny rogers and the oakridge boys at the indiana state fair i was like four years old and yeah and now it's like i would love to see the oakridge boys <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, but at the time it was like this is lame and you know my mom played Conway Twitty and Crystal Gale and Johnny Cash and Linda Ronstadt, all this stuff around the house that later in life I came to embrace. Sure. But as a kid, it was like, this stuff sucks, you know, and then getting into punk and metal and hardcore and everything, you know, it's like it took a while to come full circle. And, yeah. you know, I remember when Johnny Cash was having his whole Rick Rubin rebirth was, you know, that was where I was like, Johnny Cash, like, I know who that is. Like, yeah. <laughs> I've heard, I used to see that guy on TV when I was really little, you know, and it was like, he was cool all of a sudden. But yeah, it's funny how that, like you said, Hall & Oates is another great one. I, I, I moderated a, uh, uh, my buddy Vic from Pierce the Veil, we did like an Idol Meets Idol interview that I moderated with him where it was him and John Oates, because he's, he's a huge Hall & Oates fan. Awesome. And, um, and it was funny because we sent Pierce the Veil music to John Oates before we got them on the phone together. And he was like, is that are those real drums? Is that your drum? Your drummer plays that fast? You know, it was just, it was just the meaning of, of the minds was, was pretty fun. But uh, yeah, that's the thing you, you come to appreciate later in life, uh, different parts of, of different music. Uh, yeah. I remember 
telling my mom once really little because she was convinced that Kiss stood for Knights and Satan's service. And I remember telling her, but Peter Chris wears all those crosses. He's got to be a Christian mom. He's got crosses. <laughs> she's like, they wear it for decoration. They wear it. It's a mockery. Yeah, but little did either of us know that they didn't really give a shit about any of it <laughs> they weren't devil worshippers or christians they were just <laughs> rock dudes like so many bands yeah so uh, yeah so you said metallica was was the next real big explosion how did that how did that come across your radar i kept seeing like ads in in uh, metal magazines i'm like what is this metallica it looks cool it looks cool you know and um uh, I went to Walmart. I think I actually stole a cassette from Walmart, which is not cool, but I, yeah. uh, I was kind of a rebellious fuck up. <laughs> it's not, it's not and, cool, but it is, <laughs> but it yeah, isn't. Well, it was, it, you know, it was cool. And the fact that it turned me on to, it opened up a whole new world for me drumming wise. Yeah. Um, I heard double bass and shit. I was like, wow, that's unbelievable. I just, I laid on the floor in the, in the, family room with the headphones on i listened to the whole record and it just blew my mind because i which, never heard anything like which that. record was it master puppets oh sick what an amazing entry point too and that yeah. was that was your first time hearing anything like that yep. at all yeah for yeah. sure and i was so then i'm searching for everything i can get my hands on that's heavy and fast double bass and uh, I would see Metallica wear band shirts, you know, Venom and all that shit. And then I would check out Venom and I'm yes. like, yeah, I'm going to get all this stuff. And I just made it my mission to get everything I could get my hands on. It was all cassettes back then for me. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. yeah, it, was, yeah so, it was, it was, it, it was very, very early. The first few records I had, the first record I ever owned was Sticks Paradise Theater, which was, it. Uh, it wasn't service merchandise, but it was uh, uh, Zares. Remember that place? I was yeah, in another department store, um, and it was bought solely based on the cover artwork. You know, yeah. I just was like, cool, and it had this gatefold where it was like, one side was this theater at its peak, and the other side was the theaters all run down and closed up, and I was just like, it was the kind of album cover, like, later on with Maiden Records and stuff like that, where you were like, study the artwork or Slayer or whatever. But yeah. I remember as a real little kid, that was my first. But yeah, for the same thing, I think generationally, we were a generation where we cassettes like that was they were easier to cart around easier to make dubs for your buddies and you know i when i had the boom box with the autoplay where it would just flip the tape over for you and rain and blood was all on one side of the tape because it was so short <laughs> so it would love just it. flip it to the other side and play it um yeah i love having drummers on the show in particular because um i've had igor cavalera mike portnoy uh, the drummer from Taking Back Sunday, uh, you know, diverse drummers, then having you on as well. I love talking about Lars because he gets a bad rap. And I think, you know, aside from how monumentally important he is in the creation and formation of the band, the stewardship of the band throughout its career and being sort of this archivist, I don't think he gets a fair shake as a drummer. I think that his- I don't either. And it's, it's yeah, unfortunate because no, I think he's rad. Yeah, I feel like it's important. He has a signature sound that I think is important to their sound that you recognize and, and you're like, that's that guy. 100%. Like his song part ideas to me are some of the best I've ever heard. People may dog him because of lack of execution or something here and there, but his ideas, that helps make that band and make those records fantastic. Those, especially the early records, man. Like all those cool accents and shit that he did with this China and snare, all that. He was like 
the pioneer of that stuff. Yeah. And not a lot of people really give him credit for it because here so many drummers that can play a million miles an hour now and they just think, well, Lars is, you know, not he's sloppy or whatever, but the dude is incredibly important to that band. There would have never been that band without him. Man. Absolutely. No and I and I think it's it's also important soul and feel is so important. Yeah. You know, and I think he has a lot of that and swing and being in the pocket and you know it's I've I've gotten in conversations with fellow metalheads about Slayer and it's like, you know, yeah, Paul Bostiff, John Deddy, some of the other drummers they've had are phenomenal drummers and maybe even more technically skilled than Lombardo. But to me, Lombardo has the feel. So You're even right. if he's messing up the tempos live or a little sloppy or whatever, it's like, and the writing, you know, there's drummers in general don't get enough credit as songwriters right? Because there's some, there's some drums and some rock songs that are really just managing the tempo and that's about the role. But in metal, especially bands like Metallica and Slayer, though, you know those parts, you know? It's, oh, yeah. you, can't, you can't cover one of those songs and do different fills, you know? Like those are part of the song, like yeah. for most of those songs. And Lombardo, his feel to me, to me and his involvement with the band were their best records in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. My favorite records, um, song-wise, vibe-wise, overall to me, the, by far the best. And I Without love it. I love it all. But yeah, me too. Yeah, and it's not to take anything away from any other lineup of that band, but but yeah, yeah that's that's the drummer for me too. So I want to talk about something else you brought up already, which is something that comes up on the show a lot and that I love. Metallica, part of their importance to the culture overall is the way that they paid it forward for their influences and other bands like you said they were wearing a venom t-shirt and you're like what's venom i you know i mean i have a, a misfits tattoo and i was in a misfits tribute band with some friends and i discovered the misfits via metallica primarily and especially sam hayne and danzig and and you know all three of those bands that i love so much that all came through metallica not yeah. to mention you know diamond head and budgie and all those bands they covered <clears throat> merciful fate you know i was aware of merciful fate and king diamond from them wearing the shirts and you know uh, just talking about them in interviews and i used to open up those cassettes and you know megadeth metallica all those bands as i was discovering them and read the thanks list you know and it's like megadeth thanks overkill or something and i'm like what's overkill and that's my yeah. next lunch money and allowance is going to be an overkill tape you know <laughs> kind of sight unseen just because you know, someone in Exodus wore an overkill shirt or whatever. You know, I think that's so important. And I think Metallica did that probably better than anyone. And then especially when you think about something like, you know, Garage Inc. being triple platinum and, you know, as being a, a platinum, well-respected uh, professional musician yourself, um, the kind of publishing we're talking about when, you know, Metallica does a medley of your songs and you're, you're some guy in Merciful Fate, <laughs> it sells 3 million copies, you know, your life just changed. You know, yeah. even I uh, had Animal from Anti-Nowhere League on the show and even just, you know, Metallica celebrating So What and covering it and playing it so much brought him out of construction and back into doing the band. Love you it. know, it's like it was... All the Diamond Heads is another another one too, where it's like those guys. That's still a band, and that they would not be a band if Metallica hadn't played like four Diamond Head songs at their first show. 
It makes the trips to the mailbox pretty exciting for those guys, I would imagine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So how did that then transition um, into you playing drums yourself? Did you have people in your family that were playing instruments or how did that, how did you end up picking up an instrument? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I from six, from age six on, I was just always on the drums and I even tried to do some piano lessons for a couple of years, but I got bored sitting there. I just liked the, the aggression of, pounding drums it was fun and uh and discovering all the new cool shit that was coming out and things that you could do drumming wise it was just a lot of information so i never got bored and i was totally discovering new things and, and, and stoked on it every day i just lived to get home to play and um i terrorized the whole neighborhood we lived in an old house that was like early built in the 1900s so it was paper thin and crap <laughs> and it blasted out all over the neighborhood but they were always pretty cool but everyone was um put up with my shit for a long time and you know ha having lots of bands growing up we would jam in my basement and it was so freaking loud i mean the whole neighborhood just must have went please let them move you know <laughs> yeah that's one of the great things about being a drummer in that age too because you have the responsibility of the most gear to purchase own maintain cart around yeah usually the drummer's house ends up being where everyone practices because yeah. <laughs> it's it's the hardest stuff to move you're right um but it also makes you a hot commodity because you know when you're starting bands with your friends everyone's a guitar player everyone wants to be a singer there's few drummers <laughs> that's usually the yeah. hardest hardest guy to find so that gives you a little more of your your pick of you didn't have to probably just play with whoever you could actually pick a little bit yeah, I mean, it was a really small town. It was pretty slim pickings anyway, but it was perfect. Like uh, my first band, we had a blast. We were brothers and it was so exciting. We were all into the same stuff and discovering this new music together. And um, all of us were big Metallica fans. So we were trying to cover their songs and we did it really bad, but it was so much fun. We didn't care. Yeah. But do you remember what some of the Metallica songs you covered were? The first one was For Whom the Bell Tolls. Nice. And Seek and Destroy. Nice. My, my first, first band as a kid, we did For Whom the Bell Tolls, Creeping Death, Am I Evil, which to us was a Metallica song, and uh, Sanitarium. Oh, that's <laughs> great. That's yeah, that like was a band that never even played shows, but that was just like the first, like, you know. And yeah, terrible. I'm sure it, I would <laughs> definitely cringe if I heard what it sounded like now. Um, and yeah, same thing. We had the kid who played drums. We practiced at his house because he had drums and he had a big double bass kit. And I remember walking in there for the very first time, I was the singer and being like, Whoa. And then he yeah. sits down and starts playing and like, Oh, right. Like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not as easy as it looks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> but he, he did it. He did his best. Um, but yeah. So was there a band then? Um, Cause he, uh, wait a second. I just opened up your Wikipedia page and I apologize for not doing this two hours ago. No, it's okay. I swear I've heard of Cornucopia of Death. Did you guys yeah. play in indie? Several times. Okay. And did you open like some of the thrash shows back in the day? We did. We opened for Pantera on the Cowboys from Hell tour. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that explains a lot, man. We have to, we had to have had a lot of mutual friends and almost cross paths. Uh, Cause yeah, I just saw that band name and I was like, my, favorite band um for a long time uh, was drop dead the indianapolis drop dead um who 
whenever I say that people usually, cause there's a punk band from like Boston or something that more people know, right. but we had our thrash metal band from Indy drop dead who opened for whether it was sacred Reich, um, DRI, snow white, um, you know, like every top and middle and third tier thrash band that came through India, the Arlington theater drop dead would always open. And to my friends and I, the age we were, they weren't any different than any of those other bands. You know, we didn't, we didn't realize that their demo cassettes weren't different than the cassettes we bought of other bands. And, you know, we got their autographs and stuff at the shows and, um, you know, it didn't matter to us that they weren't internationally known. They seemed just as legit, you know, did you, did you get to experience a little bit of that doing the cornucopia death band? Like kind of feeling like you're, you're doing it for real. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, we took it very serious and I thought, well, this is, you know, we're going to make it, man. We're going <laughs> to yeah. do it. We make it. I don't give a shit what it takes. We're going to do it. I would load an 11 piece drum kit into my car or the van, <laughs> set it up myself. We'd play the show, drive a couple hours back home. I'd load it back into rehearsal place, set it back up that night and like wipe it off and shit like this 4 a.m. and then get up and go to work the next day, you know, yeah. or school. You yeah. know, so it was, um, I didn't care. I, we, as far as we were concerned, we were in it for whatever it took, just like so many musicians, you know? Yeah. I had a, a buddy who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago, but uh, one of my close friends from Indiana, um, he's in those old Pantera home videos from some of uh, the stuff they filmed in Indianapolis. I don't know if it would have been the same show, um, but that was like, you know, one of his, local claims to fame <laughs> people recognizing him from he was in like some skit they did or something oh cool if it was the if it was the cowboys tour then that was the show yeah probably um man that's cool uh was cornucopia of death was cornucopia uh, an indiana corn pun maybe it was just a weird it was just we played we had so many different styles of punk and thrash and that it was a cornucopia comedy it's such a name of the era especially because you can acronym it as the is the three-letter acronym too yeah. that's why we did it yeah that's awesome um so at some point then from there you ended up leaving indiana for los angeles yeah uh, what was the motivation behind that originally well, i just thought it, it became obvious that nothing was going to happen to take it to the next level like I wanted it to being in Southern Indiana because there just wasn't a hop in music scene. It yeah. wasn't there. So I'm like, I have to go where they were these legit, so to speak, bands that are on labels or, or where they are. So yeah. I'm going to LA. And, and people uh, need to understand too, this is pre-internet and social media where it's a lot easier to get something going from a remote place now Sure. But then, I mean, literally no, no one heard you if they couldn't come see you live or have you hand them your record. Yeah, it was tough. It was, I was shell-shocked, you know. Um, I actually got, I, I went uh, near San Diego first before L.A. Because um, one of my old school buddies was in the military and he's like, dude, let's go get a place out there. I'm like, cool, it'll get me out of here. and Let's go. So yeah. we went there and then he ended was, up. Was, was he at Camp Pendleton? He was, <clears throat> and uh, he ended up splitting and, and coming going back home, and I was just out there by myself. I'm like, sucks, <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't really know anyone. I was 19, um, and it was so different from Indiana. I didn't last. Yeah. I only lasted a few months out there before I came home 
back to my parents' house to save some more money and regather myself <laughs> yeah. and, and take a second crack at it. I had to re-prepare mentally after I kind of got a snapshot of what it was going to be. Yeah. And then I went back out and gave it a second shot. And it, was, it wasn't any easier. I lived in a freaking closet in somebody's garage for 50 bucks a month. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah, dude. The second shot is crucial because I uh, knew so many people growing up. And obviously, I still have some good friends, you know, back in Indy. But so many people you always heard like, oh, just as soon as I get this much money or just as soon as I do this or just as soon as I do that, I'm moving. I'm moving to... New York, I'm moving to LA, I'm moving to London, you know, everybody had these grand plans and very few people actually got out. And then there were people, I was similar to you when I was 21, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And it was a, it kind of on a whim where some dudes I was in a band with, one of them had a friend that had a house and blah, blah, blah. And next thing I know, I lived in Atlanta for six months. And then I ended up back in Indy. And, um, and then came out to California uh, in, in 2001 and, and, you know, that became permanent, but yeah, there, a lot of people do that first trial run and come home and never leave again. So yeah. it takes a certain something to, you know, make it out there the second time. I kind of felt, I felt ashamed. There was a part of me that was like, I can't let this beat me. I can't just, yeah accept this i'm freaking going back out there and i'm gonna do it and i did and it was yeah. fucking hard man it was really hard yeah. so what were some of the um would you say kind of crucial experiences um being out in california in terms of connecting the dots for what you would end up doing when i was living near san diego i went to see the hard rock band bullet boys they were playing this little yeah, club i remember bullet boys and um i was a fan of them like to me they were like I, I did like some of the hair metal or considered hair metal bands, whatever, yeah. but they were just a kick-ass hard rock band to me. I didn't go, well, they have, they're a hair metal band. I just was like, I dig the singer. I dig their groove. Yeah. It's cool, whatever. But I went to see one of their last shows and I was talking to the guitar player, Mick Sueda, and he was like, well, I'm leaving the band. This is my last show or I have one more show after this and then I'm leaving and I'm starting my own band. Do you know any musicians? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sent, he gave me like his management info and I sent a tape of me just like shredding a drum solo, <laughs> recorded yeah. on cassette, you know, and I sent it to his management. I didn't hear anything for a long time. And then finally, I just got a call on my machine one day and it was like, hey, this is Mick. I got your tape. It sounds great. I'm going to be putting a band together, you know, or, or I'm going to be doing something soon. I'll speak with you soon. And then I didn't hear from him for a long time. So I placed a couple calls to the management office, I think I just bugged the shit out of him so much to where he finally called me back and agreed to meet me. So we got together and like had lunch and then I also brought my drum kit along. We went to like a hourly lockout rehearsal and started jamming. That's awesome. We got along real good, it was cool. And then I'm like, well, what did you, did you like jamming together? He's like, I did, you know, we, we obviously need to jam more to see how it would fit. He's like, but I am, you know, since you need a place to stay, you can stay here you know, uh, until you find a place. So I'm like, holy shit, it just, so then I packed all my shit and went to Hollywood and lived at his place for close to a year and we were in a band together. That's amazing. And then uh, it didn't seem like much was gonna happen. Like we couldn't keep a bass player. So I split from that. And um, then Jason Hook, who I brought into Five Finger Death Punch later, mm -hmm. had joined Mick's band and he was jamming with him. And then 
they were listening to old recordings of me playing and Jason was like, well, let's get that guy. What's up with him? So I came back into the band and uh, that's how I met Jason. And then Jason and I decided, well, let's just split off and do our own thing because it didn't seem like it was working. And we wanted to just try our own songs and our own music and do our own thing. And so we split and started our own band and we got close a couple times with some record labels because we were we were managed and produced by Bo Hill, who did a bunch of uh, 80s hair rock bands, Rat, Twisted Sister, Winger, mm-hmm. Warrant. He was responsible for a lot of their successful records. Um, we got real close with him running the show at Land and a Deal. And then like so many others, it just went away right at the last second. And uh, classic story. <laughs> yeah, and I was I was fucking frustrated, man. Like, and Jason was starting to get uh, hired gigs to go be just a guitar player and touring bands, and even for pop artists. And he was making a living, and he was happy playing guitar. Yeah. And I was like working fucking office jobs in L.A. or whatever I could do to make money, and I was miserable. And um, I found out that Wasp was uh, holding auditions for a drummer, so I went and auditioned for them, and I actually got the gig wow um, what was what was the wasp lineup then I mean, was, Black, blackie obviously yeah mike duda on bass who's probably still there he's been there for years um and daryl roberts who i brought into five finger death Punch. Oh, okay he was, in, yeah. he was in wasp okay wow so it all comes together yeah man we were jamming for a couple weeks and their drummer that they had for about the past 12 years was like dude i want to come back you know let's work it out or whatever and I think they realized it was going to be way more work working in a new guy than sure. having a guy they've had for 12 years where you, you don't even have to rehearse and you can go back on a tour, you know? Yeah. So I got let go and I was like, fuck, here we go again. Now I got to get a fucking job. I, I'm, my tail's between my legs one more time. And I'm like, fuck this. I, I'm just going to try to find a metal band, you know? And uh, I punched up Shredding double bass drummer and music connection.com <laughs> nice. or something. And then Zoltan had an ad looking for a drummer and wow. I contacted him and that's how it really happened like that. I mean, you, you hear about like Motley Crue or, or, or Metallica, the Hetfield yeah. and Ulrich. Yeah. The paper, yeah. It was the same yeah. thing up online. That's pretty amazing. Especially considering, you know, the heights that your band then went on to achieve to have that old school, story of meeting each other like guitarist looking for drummer drummer looking for guitarist you know like that's awesome yeah, it, was cool. it was cool and like we got together and we started making the record before we even had the band so uh, we tracked like six or seven songs before we had anyone and then we got the other members and when yeah wow ivan came down and we he auditioned we were like holy shit we've we've got this we've got it this is our lineup and it didn't take long. We played six shows, um, got signed. It was really yeah. fast. Yeah. Um, it, it seemed to me from the outside, you know, that uh, you and Zoltan had kind of a, a Hetfield Ulrich relationship in the sense that, as you just explained, you know, you put the other guys together, audition people, and, and you were even making music before other people had come in the band. Was that kind of a, a partnership that, continued that way for a time like as far as the two of you kind of the I, I i figure most bands have what i like to call band boss right like somebody who's kind of organizing and um making sure things run everybody has their different role but would you say that the two of you were kind of the band boss position for a while 
It was kind of like the, the Hetfield Ulrich relationship dynamic. Um, we ran everything by each other and, you know, like he trusted me with certain things and uh, I knew kind of how to help him get the best out of himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked really well together for sure. And his vision was great. The guy, I'll give it to him, man. He is he really knew how to have a plan mm-hmm. and to make it fucking work. It worked. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I remember the, the first time I actually really became familiar with the band uh, was probably 2009, maybe. Um, I'm manager for a long time uh, for the band Throwdown. And oh. we uh, were supposed to do a tour with Five Finger and ended up pulling out of it like two weeks before it started. And I think God forbid ended up uh, taking that slot. Um, okay. I think Shadows Fall was on the tour. Yep. Um, and yeah, it was just, uh, the band was, was coming out of that stage of being a full-time touring band to not being one anymore. And we had just uh, switched bass players like a year before. And then the drummer had left and we'd never filled the position permanently. So they had fill-in drummers that were doing different tours and then the singer went on vacation with his family and was out of the country for about two weeks and during those two weeks we were trying to find a fill in another fill-in drummer for that five finger tour and uh in the process of doing that the guitar player who'd been kind of the other main guy for years called me up and was like uh yeah man i you know we're looking for yet another drummer and dave's out of the country and Mm. i'm peacing out like i'm done with the (laughs) band and that was you know, me calling our singer as second he got back in the country and being like, all right, so <laughs> it's you and the bass player. This tour's in two weeks. Um, Slim from Barrier Dead said he would play guitar if we can still find a drummer. And I'm like still trying to like scramble and whatever. And the singer was like, dude, you know, appreciate you trying to hold this together. But I think this, you know, the writing's on the wall. And I remember making the, the call to Tim Bohr personally to tell him. And uh, I've known him for years and, and still do. And, uh, all the years I've known him, that's the only time he's really pissed off at me. <laughs> yeah. It's hard, man. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he found, he, uh, God forbid, was ready to take that spot. Um, and, and obviously, you know, that relationship, you know, Doc Coyle, he was the guest on this last week. Um, that Doc Coyle's Oltan relationship. I don't know if it started on that tour, but I should it probably did. That was so, such a fun tour, man. We, I mean, we were all out of our fucking minds, but it was, uh, it was so much fun, man. Yeah, I, I love the Shads guys, too. I've known those dudes for a long time. and um, Yeah, they seemed like it was a good lineup. But yeah, but watching um, the success of Five Finger, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to breeze through it, but I also don't want to make you relive every moment of it. But <laughs> just kind of, you know, especially in the era when – metal bands and hard rock bands don't sell a lot of records, don't get a lot of mainstream attention, aren't on the radio, aren't playing arenas. You know, Five Finger was the first band really, I think since Avenged to come along and do it on a big level like that, you know, cause all the bands that we think about, I mean, you're on my industry newsletter, all the bands you see in there are bands from the eighties that are still doing it. Nineties, you know, some of the new metal era bands, you know, your disturbs and corns and, <clears throat> Five Finger was again, I think, the first band since Avenge that was a new band that came up and all of a sudden is, you know, putting out number one records and having these huge first weeks and going platinum and going gold. And 
that had to be a, a wild ride, especially in a moment when people are telling you undoubtedly that it's not a style of music people want. Oh yeah. You know, when you're starting a metal band in that era, people are like, nope, this isn't going to go anywhere. And especially radio, it wasn't happening at all. And we got really lucky and and got a break. Um, Our song, The Bleeding, started taking off at radio and then everything opened up from there. We were on big tour after big tour and it just kept building and building and building fast. And, you know, and like, holy shit, man, we're fucking, this thing's big really quick. And uh, we never, we just, we toured, we'd get off the road, start recording, writing. It, that was the cycle for years, and that's what you do as bands. But we yeah. we were cranking it hard, and uh, it it was a fucking whirlwind, man. It, it was It's everything you think it's going to be and everything that it, it's not anything at all like you think it's going to be. You know, it's like yeah. both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's like I, I always tell people, friends of mine when they become new parents i'm like all the cliches are true (laughs) everything you've ever heard about it is all true good the good and the bad and everything in between you're goddamn right man (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah and then obviously i mean man so many great moments uh, as five finger was on the ascent where you know legends and icons and different people from bigger bands we all grew up listening to uh became familiar with five finger or took the band on tour or did guest vocals or or what are some of your fondest memories about some of those moments of meeting your heroes and that sort of thing going out to dinner with judas priest was pretty cool you know (laughs) you never think that's gonna happen (laughs) i mean we we would be playing our set every night and rob would be on the side of the stage he would watch the whole fucking show every night and we would walk off the stage and he would walk with us and he'd go back to his dressing room. We're like, dude, don't you have to go on? What are you watching us for? He's like, I, I love the band. You know, he's, he's yeah. the coolest dude ever, man. I love that guy. Oh, that's so sick. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, I, and then he, he obviously ended up doing uh, some guest folks with Five Finger. Yeah. Did you have, going backwards for a minute and then coming back up to the Five Finger timeline, um, what was your first opportunity to see Metallica? Uh, uh, it was the Monsters of Rock Tour 88. Oh, wow. That was my first show. People listen to the podcast are rolling their eyes because it comes up a lot. But Indianapolis uh, at the arena. Uh, dude, that, yeah. that exact show. Yeah. Have we, we've, have we ever talked about this before? <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Um, <laughs> yeah. Dude, that was literally my first Metallica show also. Yeah. Um, and I, I've told this on the podcast before, so I'll make it super quick. My friend and I went, and Metallica shirts. We stood with our middle fingers in the air for all of Kingdom Come. We watched <laughs> Metallica, and then we went home. And if I had it to do over again, I would love to see the Scorpions. I would love to see Van Hagar. But at the time, I was very much, I kind of leapfrogged right from punk and new wave into thrash metal via Peace Cells was my first thrash metal tape. And so at the time I was very like posers must die, you know, yeah, so I yeah. hated everything hair metal. And to me, Van Halen was hair metal and Scorpions were hair metal. And, you know, of course you get older and you start to understand, you know, now it's like, man, I would have loved to have seen the Scorpions in 88. And they fucking Van Hagar in 88 is probably awesome. Yeah. It was awesome, dude. And I don't know if you remember during Kingdom Come, but James Kotek played a drum solo and he stood up while playing double bass. And I was like, how the fuck did he do that, man? I was so blown away. 
<laughs> no, it's gnarly. Yeah, and, I, and another fond memory from that was uh, the next day in the Indianapolis Star News paper, on the cover of the entertainment section, there was a picture of Jason Newstead on stage, and then a picture next to him of Jason Newstead's dad, who was in the front row against the barricade in an Justice for All shirt. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, his dad, I guess, had driven down from Michigan. And the caption was like, you know, Jason Newstead's dad, like so-and-so Newstead, both the band Metallica. And uh, I, I clipped that out and I had it hanging on my wall for the longest time. And I have a friend now who is the music editor at the Star News. And I emailed him a couple of years ago and I was like, hey, there was this issue. Could you blah, blah, blah. And he went in the archive and got me a PDF. <laughs> awesome. So I have a PDF now on my computer of that that image of Newstead's dad. But it's, yeah, it's one of those things where you just feel like a connection to a band where you're like, oh man, his dad was at the show I was at. That's so crazy. Like, right. That's awesome. Yeah. And I remember Newstead at the time would wear Sacred Rag t-shirts and so many bands that I kept discovering through Metallica. But Speaking yeah. of Sacred Rag, I saw them at Bogarts in Cincinnati and Obituary opened up for them on their first tour. Gnarly. And it was such a new thing that people never heard that the fucking crowd was booing the shit out of obituary. And I was like, what is this? Because that dude was, you know, the yeah. fucking major death metal vocal shit that, that nobody had really done it on his level I, that I'd ever heard. The and first people, time I ever heard death metal was at the Arlington Theater at some show, I don't know who, a thrash show. And in between bands over the PA, they played Pull the Plug by Death. Fucking love I remember it. my friends and I, making fun of it we're metal dudes we have long hair battle vests all the patches and everything and that comes on i remember we were all like oh, like what is this and of course i that's one of my favorite bands of all time now yeah. um but in that first moment yeah you're like what is happening why is this guy singing like this what is happening what's your why favorite is this part death so record? slow what's your favorite death album uh individual thought patterns or symbolic it's close fucking dope yeah i'm, I'm a gene i'm a gene guy i mean so many amazing drummers throughout that band's history but those yeah. are the two for me Human is mine, yeah, Sean. Oh, Rainer. Human, yeah, right before that, yeah. Like those, that's like a, that's like a holy trinity. Those three albums, yeah, because yeah, they're also very. You can hear the progression through the three of them, like they're very interlinked. I think. And then uh, Andy from the King Diamond Band doing the solos on individual thought patterns. Oh, that's right. That's right. Steve DiGiorgio on bass, and have you watched? Uh, uh, Jason Bittner from Shadows Fall did one of those uh, quarantine videos where they cover. Um, I'm blanking on which song it is, but it's one of the songs from that era. And it's him and Steve DiGiorgio. And and then I think kind of inspired by that, Hoagland ended up doing one with Steve DiGiorgio. So, but there's there's recent, like super recent, the last few months. Uh, I'll, I'll send you links to them. They're, uh, That'd be great, yeah. They're killer, yeah. And they're all, you know, from the drum perspective. Dude, my favorite thing about watching Gene Hoagland, and I'm curious for your take on this as a drummer, is, you know, there's drummers that are like super intense and, you know, somebody like Lars who's making the faces and you watch Gene Hoagland play and it looks like he could take a nap. He's doing the gnarliest, craziest, jazziest. And he's just like, like how is that possible? He wears combat boots. When he <laughs> That's plays. the other thing too. Yeah. They're like fucking cinder blocks. I'm like, how the hell does that guy do it? I, I don't know if he does it for balance or what the fuck it's for, but he's yeah. un unbelievable, man. Yeah. We played shows with Testament. And on oh festival. yeah yeah so i got to watch him from the side of the stage just like holy shit this is the lord up there you know yeah oh so gnarly um <laughs> the the what do they call them the atomic clock yeah unbelievable yeah my, my daughter she's 12 but 
she was getting interested in drums and recognizing like drumming and music and stuff a year or two ago. And uh, I pulled up a, a Gene Hoagland playthrough video on YouTube just to show her like, look what this guy's doing. And I'm like, look at his expression. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like just, it's just <laughs> such a bizarre, insanely awesome thing yeah. that he has he of his own. Totally ruled. So what were, what were your next few uh, Metallica experiences after that? Uh, well, I was really into Injustice for All. And then yeah. I think when the Black Album came out, I, I mean, I appreciated it, but I was a little let down because I was just so used to technical playing and yeah. that style that they had done for so long that it threw me. And I'm like, it's really well done, but it just didn't light the fire under me. I appreciated it much more later. Of course. The sound of that record to me is incredible and the songs are great. Yeah, the production sound is like the touchstone. But yeah, but yeah and I, I was, I mean, I remember I had friends, you know, our little our little tiny metalhead crew that sat at the lunch table together in high school. I remember the day after, the morning after Injustice for All had come out that about half of those kids, I mean, it was a small, small group of us, but about half of those kids were over Metallica because of justice. Because it wasn't, it's, it was like, that was the sellout album to them, which is again, insane, you know, looking back. Um, but this was as some of those guys started moving into, you know, by the time Metallica was becoming more popular, those guys were getting into Morbid Angel and Deicide and Cannibal sure. Corpse. And, um, but yeah, I remember each, so that was, you know, in the nineties when the mid nineties and late nineties, when a lot of fans turned their backs on Metallica, I remember thinking like, this is just the same thing that always happens though. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like every time they put out a record, the audience is challenged by it and then it comes around to it, you know, yeah. and that, I think that's been, you know, with, with a few exceptions, I think that's been the story of their whole, their whole ride. You know, I just watched some kind of monster again the other night. Oh, wow. Um, and that's, I can relate so much to that. Right. Going, That's everyone who's ever been in a band or been around bands. Right. Like it's, it's kind of, you know, spinal tops, the con spinal tap is the comedy version of that. And then some kind of monster is like the real version. But those are the two things that you can show any band at any point in their career. And they'll be like, Oh, they, re they recognize situations and personalities and conflicts and getting so universal. Anxiety, watching it going, fuck PTSD, man. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Dude, totally. <laughs> yeah I, I got to see that actually at, uh, when it premiered at Sundance um, I was uh, a reporter for MTV at the time which was part of what brought me to California in the first place and they sent me to Sundance to interview Haley Duff Hillary Duff's sister for a news piece on TRL and the piece was did you know Hillary Duff has a sister introducing Haley Duff yeah. And all she had done was some independent movie nobody had ever heard of that was premiering at Sundance. Well, the movie was Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. And uh, I interviewed the rest of the cast and the director as a courtesy, just to like, because we we're doing the Haley Duff piece. I mean, this is such a like snapshot of MTV and yeah. how things work, right? But uh, some kind of monster was there the same time I was there. So I, I worked it out where I could stay an extra day to go to that screening. And then they did a, a, a Q&A for the press where the band was in Hawaii <laughs> on a satellite and we're all like freezing in, you know, Park City <laughs> in a little tent and we get to ask our question. But um, yeah, I remember, man, watching that movie for the very first time and just sitting there and 
as much as the, as the band, you know, they put out demos with Hetfield going na 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 na, and you know, they, they were always very revealing to their fans. But that was just like, man, the the, the balls of any band or any oh, yeah. group, corporation, and small company, whatever it is, you know, creative partnership, to put that out there it was just like, wow. You just felt like yeah. a raw nerve was exposed for two hours or whatever the whole time you're watching it. Yeah. Kudos to them, man, for going through that whole process. What a, what an incredible thing to document. Yeah. I mean, how, holy shit. It, it's video gold. You know, they had yeah. no idea. They just thought it was an idea. It's a piece of product. Let's do it. And yeah. Then, it started shit, out as just a typical EPK. Like it was going to be, you know, a little 30 minute making of the album. <laughs> bonus material that gets sent to you know the media or whatever yeah that turns into that and then apparently the two directors were going through something as it was happening not unlike what the band was going through <laughs> and so i ended up one of the one of the guys uh wrote a book about the experience a couple of years later and uh, the book's pretty fascinating oh nice but, um yeah and he went on to you know they did a, they did had done all those paradise lost documentaries um <laughs> And he actually went on to direct the sequel to the Blair Witch, which was a huge flop. And he right. writes about that in the book. He tells the whole story of like, it's, a, it's an interesting look into the, that some kind of monster era of Metallica. And also an interesting look into, you know, cause nobody sets out to make a bad movie. It's yeah. an interesting look into like how a big budget flop happens, you know, and the, yeah. the compromises and arguments and things that result whatever. So, as a member of Five Finger, um, you know, there was the, gosh, was it, I can't believe it was that long ago, but 2012 maybe when Metallica did the Golden Gods with Five yeah. Finger? Yeah, we- You guys did it the same year, right? We did. I, for some reason, we were not there when they played. I don't know why. We and did. I remember they kind of stole Halford from you because the thing was that at the Golden Gods, every band- kind of had to do a guest thing and uh, I was the manager for Dillinger at the time and we had Chino from Deftones sang with them and you know it was like but that was always the thing you know it was like Marilyn Manson brought out Johnny Depp and that was like the Golden Gods thing right and as I remember the story Five Finger was already going to have Halford and Metallica didn't have a guest you know (laughs) Metallica comes in somewhere and it's like it's a Metallica show but the Golden Gods people were still like hey but you kind of that's kind of what we do we everybody does like a duet and then it was like well halford's already there <laughs> so i think they kind of <laughs> co-opted him from you guys oh wow yeah that was cool and we we uh we had rob zombie that's too. right yeah yeah the robs yeah that's great it was really fun <laughs> so did you get to um interact with metallica at all there i guess you said you weren't there when they actually played um had, had you met them prior or at any point on the on the rise of five finger i never met metallic i think i met jason newstead after he was out how was that or where was that during the newstead band thing yeah uh, it was during the newstead thing and chris kale our bass player went up to him mm-hmm. and said hey i'm chris kale from five finger death punch he goes i know who you are you fuck <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. just being cool you know but like yeah, yeah. i know who the fuck you are you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's rad not a lot of guys that look like kale walking around at the festival um, yeah that's rad yeah i uh i got to meet newstead um let me think for a second it was right when he joined ozzy's band 
and we yeah. we did a we did an MTV News piece that was you know because this was also when the Osbournes was big so that so that was an excuse to get metal on we did an MTV News piece about Newstead joining the band and I went with our a little camera crew to a rehearsal place in Burbank and it was Mike Borden Zach Wild Ozzy and Newstead nice. and, this, and the setup it was us and a crew from CNN and the setup was they they would play a few songs and then we would each you know interview Ozzy and Jason together and uh <laughs> such a fanboy moment because it's this little rehearsal room and it's it's just me and my two crew members girl from CNN her two crew members and the band I don't even remember any like handlers really um and <laughs> I went to the bathroom I come out of the stall I go to wash my hands and Newstead is washing his hands so we're in this tiny little bathroom in this tiny rehearsal space and I'm washing hands. There's two sinks. I'm washing hands next to Jason Newstead. And so I'm like, hey, uh, I know it's weird to talk to you in the bathroom, but uh, I'm the guy from MTV. I'm going to be interviewing him. He's like, oh yeah, hey man, cool, cool, cool. And I was like, <laughs> I just want to tell you, Metallica is my favorite band of all time. I also love Flotsam and Jetsam. I love Atrophy. I love Sacred Reich. I'll be, he's like, yeah, all the Phoenix, all the Arizona stuff. I'm like, yeah, dude, I love all that stuff. That's my whole era. He's like, I can't believe you're in Voivod. It's one of my favorite yeah. bands of all time. And he was like, cool, man. Cool, cool, cool. And then he's like, do me a favor. When we're with Oz, don't bring up the Voivod thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you got it, man. <laughs> no problem. And uh, yeah, it was cool. And uh, man, Ozzy said in that interview that uh, Jason reminded him of Geezer Butler. Ah. It was like a real cool moment where, you know, Nusa kind of looks at him and he's like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah. Like a, like a young geezer butler and he's like that's he's like there's no one in the world more qualified to say that than him so that's great take it you know but, oh, but yeah he was he was super cool and then i and then i met him another time on that oz fest where he was playing an aussie and then voivod was headlining the second stage and uh, yeah it couldn't have been cooler and he, and he had still all of his road cases had the metallica stencil <laughs> painted on all of them so you'd see all that gear you know yeah. and it's like Metallica gear, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it seemed like during the Newstead thing, he he was really appreciative of bands like Five Finger and Bullet for My Valentine. I remember seeing interviews where he would talk about meeting people from younger bands that were coming up and how cool everyone was to him. And he he was the guy that always had his finger on the pulse, you know, wearing yeah. the Machine Head hoodie and the Load artwork. <laughs> like that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was him, you know, yeah. Sepultura or whatever, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so this brings us all the way kind of then full circle. Um, you initially uh, bowed out of the band for health reasons, right? Like you had some kind of surgery or something like that was the original thing that sidelined you. Is that correct? I had a back surgery and then went back on tour. Um, it was too soon. Hmm. My back was deteriorating. I had degenerative discs and I wasn't playing up to snuff. Um, I was in pain. It had been almost 14 years. I was like, I got to step off this now. I got to stop. I just, I have to. Now's the time. Yeah. It, it was a great, it was great, but I, it, it, I knew don't be the, the athlete that stays around too long when they should have retired three years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Young man's game it, for that position. You need yeah. to, 
you need to be in fucking great shape. And my, I, we started late. I was older when we started. I, I gave it my all. My body finally went, dude, run, let's shut that down. Checking so, out. Yeah. I slept off and I went and got surgery. My back's great now. Like it's, I got disc replacement. It's like the fucking Terminator back. Yeah, but, cyborg. <laughs> it sucked though. That surgery sucked, and it's. Uh, I was like depressed for six months, laying on the couch. I couldn't do shit even after the surgery. Like they went in through the front, they took my guts out, and really. the front and the back. Right, like it was a serious fucking surgery. Um, it, but the, the five finger thing was a good run. But you do anything for fourteen years, man. It's gonna fucking wear you out. Like, and that's an intense thing pressure cooker to be in every day man like yeah that's i think newstead did metallica for 14 years and also had neck problems and i'm seeing an interview where hetfield pointed out that out of the big four three of the four of them have had neck surgery yeah (laughs) so it's you know it's like we haven't really seen uh, what uh you know, we, we've seen the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney and, but since this intense music has been invented, yeah, we haven't seen a band become senior citizens yet. You know, it's like, we don't yeah, know true. how long you can get up and play battery. <laughs> you know? No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> we haven't seen it yet. Interesting to, to kind of get there. So, yeah. so what did life become in the immediate aftermath of, of, of stepping off because I know there's for anybody in any band of any level but especially doing it at that level you know your band becomes so intertwined with your identity right where it's like you're so used to being the dude from the thing like I'm the dude from the thing I'm the dude from the thing yeah. and then there's that moment where you wake up one morning and you're like I'm not the dude from the thing yeah um, what was that part of that process like and uh, you know how long did that kind of inevitable um, sort of transition period last for you it was a little weird i was ready though like i was okay leaving i chose to leave so i was more prepared mentally for it but you still have dreams every night but you're still doing your routine and that yeah. that lasted for a long time uh it's like psychological muscle memory for sure um you would think oh shit I would have dreams that the show, the intro's rolling and I'm getting ready to go play and something's yeah. wrong or whatever, you know, just all kinds of weird. Yeah. But, it, you know, it took a while, but I was busy, man. I was, I put myself right to work doing pa- projects that I wanted to do and, and just live some life on my terms and rules and schedule and not have mm-hmm. to worry about when we're having a meeting, making a record, going on tour, having a fucking interview, whatever. So, it, it it was all good for me, um, minus that surgery. That sucked. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but now you're now you're a cybernetic organism, yeah. <laughs> so you can uh, yeah, better than ever. And was that injury just something from teenage years that you just kept aggravating, or how did that develop? It wasn't really an injury. It was just degenerative discs. It was mm. from sitting, horrible posture, playing drums, head banging, traveling, wearing backpacks. It just yeah. Shit. Started taking a toll and sleeping, uh, sleeping in a little rolling coffin that's bumping along the road. Oh yeah, yeah. None of that's none of that's good for your for your physical or mental health. No way. Yeah. So uh, talk to me then about how that that evolution that leads us up to uh, what you're doing now and the record that well, you're coming out and all that. 
Yeah, I uh, I was making my own music for years. Uh, I, I've always been a fan of like 80s new wave music as well as besides metal, you know. Nice. So I wanted I that's the kind of music I was actually writing and I was really enjoying writing the lyrics, singing, playing the instruments, doing it all myself. And uh, so I made a few records and uh, but I decided that I wanted to have a band into, I miss heavy music, but I still wanted to, I kind of wanted to mold them together. So that's where Psychosexual is now. Like I have a band and we have a record coming out. So it's kind of new wave, gothy, metal all blended together you know and it's, it's a, a it's a great name for that too the same way that fear factory is a great name i remember telling somebody once um that i was going to see a band and uh they were called fear factory and they said well, what's, what's the band sound like and i was like well it's kind of metal mixed with industrial and they were like well that's <laughs> that's what it sounds like and you said the name you yeah. know it's like yeah that's the same sort of thing that the name communicates that that blend of aggressive music and that you know yeah softer weirder trippier side from new wave yeah. and stuff like that and you know i've since i was always a fan of kiss and, and theatrical bands ghost and we wear prosthetics and makeup and we try to put on this show and it's it's a really fun departure from just straight ahead hard rock metal that death punch was but even death punch we you know i wore skeletons Makeup. Yeah, no, Def Punch definitely has an image. Yeah, that, that that word can have a negative connotation, which I don't. You know, image and presentation has always been super cool to me. Whether it's, uh, I mean, you know, I'm a big defender of Black Veil Brides, and Andy's one of my closest friends. And super talent, man. What a super talented guy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like a you know, I think creating a, a character sort of is, um, I don't know, gives you something to connect to with a band even beyond the music. I think it's cool. Yeah. I mean, how many times have we seen normal guys do music? whoop de doo yeah. Like, it's cool, but it's not cool enough for me. I want to see some shit. Yeah. I want to see some fire. And even, so, you know, even, you know, Hetfield with his, with his explorer-shaped guitar and his, his bent knee stance and the way his microphone is and, you know, or Lemmy. I mean, you know, Lemmy wasn't wearing a costume per se, but he was. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, Slash, you know, like, I mean, oh. Slash has an eternally timeless, cool look. And it's like, it's a thing. You know, if you see him without the top hat or mirrored shades, you're, you know, it's kind of like something's <laughs> off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think that whole element um, is cool. Thank so you. where, this is always something for anybody, you know, like when I was talking about Throwdown earlier, you know, when bands hit that, people in bands hit that stage where, um, you're not, you know, the configuration of, of, of it changes, right? Because there's the point in your life where music is number one. Everything has to fall in line behind it. Playing, touring, putting out records, nonstop grind. Go, 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 go. And that burns out for everybody. I mean, you know, Metallica only does two weeks on, two weeks off touring. And they're the biggest in the genre. Uh, so it, it inevitably people get in a place in their life where they figure out a different way to do it or whatever the case may be where would you say you are now in terms of where doing a band is compartmentalized in relation to the other things in your life and what sort of balance is there? And, you know, obviously with the COVID it's, everything's different because you couldn't be touring all year, even if you wanted to, but yeah. you know, where, where does it, where does it fit for you now? Well, you know, since I haven't been the front man before, it's going to be exciting. I'm excited because it's just, 
new stimulation I've never experienced. I can't wait to tour and try that from that position because I've yeah. done many tours in arenas and festival stages as the drummer, but this is a different role. Yeah. And it's my band, you know, um, it's, 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 I love it. it just, I'm really having fun with the freedom of it. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I wish that everyone could experience that, you know, what I'm experiencing. I'm enjoying every part of the process, which I think is important. Um, Cause it's, you know, we may never get to play a festival or an arena doing what I'm doing in psychosexual, but I'm enjoying the process regardless of where it is. I've already done the other yeah. thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I've, I've been on the biggest stages you can be on and it's been amazing and I'm grateful and it was a blessing and, and it's allowing me to do all the things in life I, I want to do now. And it's great. So yeah. we play shitholes across the planet. I'll do it as long as I am having fun. And if it gets bigger, I'll do it as long as I'm having fun. You know, we'll just see. I'm just enjoying the ride, man. Yeah, and that's what's great about it being your uh, creative vision and execution, all components and all sides of it, because also sink or swim, win or lose, it's on your terms. Yeah. And you can you can feel good about whatever happens with it, knowing that you that it, you made it what you wanted it to be exactly without any compromise and without, you know, so that's that's always super cool. Yeah, we're working hard. Like we, our first album comes out this Friday called Torch the Faith. And then uh, we've already, we just finished the second record. So like, oh, we, wow. <laughs> everyone's in quarantine, man. Like what else yeah. do you do? So we're doing yeah. a live stream show on Friday for the release of the record. Uh, but then we're, we'll probably just move on to record three. Like it's until we can tour, you can't do shit. Yeah. And what's the, what's the record making process been like? Like where do you guys record and you know, who, who tracks it and all that stuff? Uh, my friend Sean, who's in the band and is the co-producer, has a studio here in Vegas. And oh, nice. It's like 15 minutes from here, and I'll be going there later. We rehearse. Um, so we, I just get together. Or And I have the exact same studio set up here. So he comes over here, and he's my neighbor. So we are either <laughs> his studio or mine like, yeah. pretty much every day. That's perfect. That's awesome, yeah. man. Um, yeah. Okay, so lastly... Um, and take your time because sometimes it takes a minute to think. Well, first yeah. of all, actually two things, two things lastly. Second to last, when you sit down behind a drum kit, if a Metallica bits are gonna come out of you, fills, uh, parts, what what's most natural if you're just warming up and you're messing around and something Metallica pops out? Well, if I'm, if I'm like line checking the drums, playing something like Sad But True is great because it's power groove and it, you can dial in the tones. If you're playing something chaotic, yeah, like battery or something, <laughs> it's tougher for the sound guy. He's going, all right, yeah. asshole, can you just play twos and fours and chill out and play the ACDC? You know? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I always like playing one, you know, the double bass part. Um, but shit... I love all of it, man. I, yeah. I don't. And know justice I can for all—that's a good drum lick. That's great, man. Some of that shit's really technical, and it's yeah. hard, man. It's yeah. really fucking hard. Yeah, yeah, that right. record especially. Um, okay, so last thing: top five Metallica songs. Ooh, uh, let's see. Well, Master Puppets is up there. I don't know if I'm giving you one. I'll just give you five of my favorite. How about that? That's all it's going to be. Yeah. Um, Doesn't have to be. Yeah. And I always, I always argue there's a difference between best and favorites. 
Yeah. Right. Cause you can recognize something as the best, whatever in terms of impact and this and that, but the, the favorite is, is often different. Yeah. I would say battery master of puppets, uh, probably maybe even leper messiahs up there. Nice. Uh, let's see. What's something off justice. Oh, Sid Black, and it's pretty serious. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, that, Dyer's Eve, I think, is my favorite song on Justice. Yeah, I, I love Hit the Lights, too. I, I yeah. think it's a great, what a great opener, man. That's, that's killer. And I love the sound of that record and the punk vibe. I think that's a great record. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've given you five or not. It's tough, man. I, lo I love so much of their stuff, but I started running out of Metallica gas after probably the Black Album, you know, although I did appreciate Hardwired. Yeah, love Hardwired. I wasn't maybe as blown away by Death Magnetic as some of the other people, although I did go see the tour and I had a great time and I thought they were awesome. Um, but I'm forever a fan and I think Lars rules and everyone that dogs on him needs to fuck off because he rules. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> There's our headline. I love it. Um, well, dude, thanks so much for reaching out about this. Um, appreciate uh, you making the connection. I appreciate you coming on. It's been great talking to you. Uh, I mean, just the the Hoosier thrash metal connection alone yeah. is enough, let alone the, you know, pick up and move to the West Coast and all the other stuff we have in common. So thanks again. Oh, and where can people find you? Where should they look for you? Uh, well, if on Instagram, uh, psychosexual or official, no, psychosexual official is the Instagram. And then you can always go to psychosexualmusic.com, the website. Perfect. Right on, man. Thank you.